You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You are listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for the last 11 years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, we watched UFC 291 together on Saturday night. Turned out to be a pretty good card. Probably unfair to think that 291 could live up to the highs of UFC 290. But we did get a pretty good card out of it. Uh, Justin Gaethje ends up defeating Dustin Poirier, second-round head kick in the main event to claim the quote-unquote BMF title. Alex Pereira outlasts Jan Blahovich in the co-main to win by split decision. Also on the main card, Derek Lewis, Bobby Green, Kevin Holland were all winners. We got a fair amount of listener mail about this pay-per-view, which generally means that it was widely watched. And so we feel like it probably did pretty well for the UFC. Not that that's a huge concern on anyone's mind. But I guess that makes sense. You got some marketable guys on here, Dustin Poirier, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody wanted to watch Poirier and Gaethje fight again. So what we're going to do this week is, like we do a lot, I guess, coming out of these pay-per-views, when we get a lot of listener mail, we're going to forego our normal three-round format, and we are just going to get into talking about UFC 291. Uh, We're going to talk about Poirier and Gaethje off the top, get into Pereira and Yanni Blackjacks after that, and then we'll try to get through as much of this listener mail as we can. We're not going to get through all of it, frankly, but we're going to do the best we can over the next 60 plus minutes to read as much of it as we can. How are you doing? What were your impressions? I guess we'll start off with overall of uh, UFC 291. You know, there were some surprises Mm -hmm. on this one for me. Um, you showing up with your glorious mustache was thankfully not that big a surprise since I had already seen it on the the previous day's power hour. You you continuing to have the mustache here for this one, because I was led to believe, Chad, you told me you're growing a mustache kind of as a bit yeah. for a going away party. That going away party was last week, was it not? It was. And then I started to recognize the added respect that the mustache was garnering <laughs> me out on the streets, out in the world. And I was like, you know what? Maybe I'll let it roll for a while. Maybe we'll see how far we can take this. It's already gotten bushier. It's oh, filled yeah. out some. No, it's going. You're getting into sort of prime Tom Selleck, sort of Magnum PI territory. It also, though, appears to be sort of like it wants to get a little handlebarish. It does turn down there at the corners. The problem uh-huh. is I would go full handlebar if I could. I would go full Hollywood Hogan with it. Uh, but I don't really have the connection. Like right under the, the bottom lip, I have a part that doesn't fill in. So I can do the handlebar, but it's it's it looks like I'm trying too hard, you know? And I figure yeah. when you can get as much density as I'm getting up on top of the lip. A lot of density. Yeah. Maybe you just go with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just, uh, you seem like if you show up at the skate park trying to buy a lid of grass right now, they're, brother, they're going to sniff you out yeah. right away as a I'm, narc. 
I'm, I'm going to no see way. if I can. Uh, I'm going to see if I can make a few busts this week. I'm going to go out <laughs> on the streets, see if I can uh, shake some people down. Just telling people, hands up on the car. Nobody gets smart. And you know what? I'd believe it. I'd be like, well, that mustache, that's an authority figure. You may have forgotten, but a couple of minutes ago, I asked you what your impressions <laughs> of UFC 291 were. Do you feel like you can give those now or do you have some other items you, know, you want to bring up? I've got, I've got a lot of impressions, frankly, that go off in a lot of different directions. Here's one thing, though, that I... I found myself thinking about on Sunday after, you know, we watched our dude, Michael Chiesa, friend of the podcast. Good dude. We always want to see him do well. He had a bit of a rough night against Kevin Holland. I said to you before this one started that Michael Chiesa could be in for a rough one here just because, you know, he's a guy who came up from lightweight to welterweight. Kevin Holland's a guy who came down from middleweight to welterweight. And there was a little bit of a power disparity, a strength disparity in this one, especially evident when Michael Chiesa got in deep on some of those takedown attempts that he wanted and still couldn't finish him because Kevin Holland would just immediately sort of shove him off, turn him against the fence, and just felt like, okay, he was a little bit physically overmatched there. Kevin Holland had several things to say. Unsolicited career advice, you might call it, after this fight, both in the immediate post-fight interview in the cage, and then at the post-fight press conference. And I'm not saying he was necessarily wrong about any of it, but he didn't have to put it like that, did he? You think there was a why they do that moment with Kevin Holland A little Holland bit of a why, why they do that. Being just night? like, you didn't have to do him like that, man. You didn't have to just basically be like, the game's passed him by. He should quit. He's never going to be a champion. Be realistic. Stop doing this because you're just going to get yourself hurt. And you're just like, bro, first of all, I remember all the way back to last year when you retired after <laughs> you know getting ragdolled by Hamzat Shamayev. So I don't know, maybe not the necessary guy to give career advice here, but also just like, couldn't we have got out of there just saying, hey, congratulations to me on my victory. Feel real good about it. Michael Chiesa came in here, fought hard, but I was the better man. I mean, if anything, haven't we learned that when you beat somebody in a fight, the thing to do afterwards is to make it out like they're really good. Yeah. That's the time to talk about how good they are is right after you beat them so that your victory over them seems more impressive. If you beat them and you show up and be like, this guy sucks and he should quit. Then it, what does it mean to beat that guy? Yeah, You kind of just undercut your own accomplishment, man. And also sort of came away looking like a jerk a little bit. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like some pre-fight talk, frankly. Maybe yeah. Kevin Holland got mixed up with his pre-fight and his post-fight talk. Maybe <laughs> he could read, the, read the wrong page out of his talking points. Which could uh, happen to anybody. You could understand. Yeah. I hate to have to point this out about Michael Chiesa. But the man is 18 and 7 overall in his MMA career. Do you know how many of those losses are by submission, Ben? Five. Six. All of them but one by submission for Michael Chiesa. You might say, no, you were right, actually. It is five. Two losses. Two losses. He's got a TKO to Joe Lousen that I missed, and he's got a decision to Sean Brady that I missed. Uh you, you still could say, you got to look at that and say, Mike, there's a hole in the game. But it's weird because it's not like 
grappling is what he wants to do most yeah. of the time. Yeah. So you would think that the submissions part would be something that he would have kind of taken care of. But, I mean, again, filed under, he's not wrong, but he didn't have to say it like that. Kevin Holland was talking about how he studied film and that uh, felt like when Kiesa was threatened that he would shoot. And so he had kind of had that scouted, and that's what allowed him to lock up that Darst joke and finish it. Um, and then I believe he also, in a way where he seemed kind of surprised to be saying it, it was like, film study works. <laughs> how about that? Yeah, you never know. Michael Kiesa, loser of three in a row now so at 35 years old perhaps a crossroads there i don't know we'll have to see how it goes a uh, reminder you're listening to the co-main event podcast proper this show drops every monday afternoon for free in your timelines and podcast libraries but kids that's not all you can find the co-main event ben folks and myself all week over on patreon Hit us up at patreon.com slash co-main event and get loads of extra audio and video content. You want to see the mustache? Go over to the Patreon. That's where it's at. You get access to our official Discord message board as well. The coolest people in MMA are over there chatting it up every day. The only rule on the site, no assholes. Right now, you can sign up for a seven-day free trial of the Patreon. Get the access that you would get at the $5 level. If you've been wondering about the Patreon, but you're not sure what it is or how it works, now you can check it out for free. As everybody knows, we can only keep making this show with the support from awesome listeners like you. So there it is. Come party with us. We think it's the funnest, smartest, most welcoming group of men and women talking fights online. Head over to patreon.com slash co-main event and sign up to join the team. You may also consider supporting the show by buying some merchandise over at the CME shop. Head over to our website at comainevent.com and you'll find old favorites like the original Dundasso t-shirt, the old school cowboy astronaut cigarettes t-shirt, and you can find new stuff like the Are You Fucking Kidding Me shirt, the Bobby Nux shirt, and the brand new shirt, Ben, Volcomania. Volcomania yeah. is running wild over there at comainevent.com. What you gonna do, brother? That's right. Head over to the website. You. Head over to the website, comainevent.com. Click the link that says shop. As always, we're partnering with our friends at Superconductor. They're a brand and design studio from Portland, Oregon. We highly recommend them for all your design needs. Hit them up at studiosuperconductor.com or on Instagram, Studio Superconductor. All right, let's get into the main event here. Justin Gaethje and Dustin Poirier, a rematch of their previous fight, which was a slugfest. Uh, and one of the, probably the best fights of the year when it happened, it's one that when we found out they were going to do it again, brother, no one complained about Justin Gaethje and Dustin Poirier spending some more time in the cage together. Dustin Poirier, Ben came into this thing as a slight favorite and conventional wisdom, I think said that he would end up out dueling Justin Gaethje over a period of time. But everyone said, and we said this on Friday over during our Patreon power hour podcast you know Justin Gaethje got that one-strike knockout power, and so he's always going to be a live dog in there. Dustin Poirier is going to have to be careful of that. He's going to have to avoid those power strikes, and in this one, it was Justin Gaethje getting to the head of Dustin Poirier with a kick uh, about a minute into the second round, knocked him unconscious in a way that we are basically not used to seeing Dustin Poirier get done. We're not used to seeing him get done like that. Ben folks. So it was a surprise to me. I'll be honest. It was a surprise to see it. 
happen to Dustin Poirier at all, but also to see it come from Justin Gaethje via head kick. Mm-hmm. You know, this was one of those those nights where a couple different people thrown out some techniques that maybe we didn't know they had. Yeah, Justin Gaethje among them. You just you, you go out there and you're thinking about what you have to worry about with Justin Gaethje. You're thinking kicks basically below the waist. Right. He loves to chop away at a fellow's legs over the course of a fight. Uh, and then big punching power. You don't necessarily think about that he's going to come up high with the head kick, which maybe is one of the things that helped him land it. Yeah, that could well be, uh, as noted at length on the broadcast, a head kick that looked strikingly like, no pun intended, the kick that Leon Edwards landed on Kamara Usman when the UFC was down there in, in Salt Lake City before. Man, uh, that you know just who, blew Daniel Cormier's mind, didn't it? Daniel Cormier acted like he had seen a ghost <laughs> when he saw Justin Gaethje <laughs> land that kick. Like 10, 10 minutes maybe of Daniel Cormier going off, wanting to show the replay over and over again. I'll tell you what, this is one of the things we like about mixed martial arts, right? If we're being honest with ourselves, we kind of like it when a guy like Daniel Cormier goes off on a broadcast on some kind of weird tangent. In this case, the freaky coincidence of Leon Edwards and Justin Gaethje landing identical strikes to win main event fights in Salt Lake City. You would have thought uh, that he had cracked the code to the universe by seeing this happen again, the way Daniel Cormier responded. You could feel his brain just blowing up (laughs) when they played those clips side by side. the, The childlike sense of wonderment was fully intact for Daniel Cormier. He could not believe it. And it was just like when Joe Rogan got back in there at to the broadcast table and be like, Joe, I don't know if you saw it. They played the clip. And Joe's like, no, man, I saw it. I saw it too. I looked up at the screen. I saw it. You but know he what? Just- if Joe Rogan won't fully sign on with your conspiracy theory slash supernatural intervention ideas, you should probably drop them. I just got to say. <laughs> I mean, uh, it was kind of crazy to be back at Salt Lake City, have really two unexpected head kick knockouts. Um, it must have been a little bit of a good news, bad news situation because Kamar Usman was there to watch his friend and training partner, Justin Gaethje, win this fight and then like have to look up at the screen and be like, oh, okay, so we're going to keep doing this? We're going to keep, <laughs> we can't just celebrate Justin's night. We got to also remind people that what happened to me in this same building? Okay. Yeah. Okay, guys. Justin Gaethje now three and two in his last five. The losses are to Habib Nurmagomedov and Charles Oliveira, both of those in title fights. He's probably, we would think, the odds-on favorite to be the number one contender again after this victory, so long as he's available, the timing works out, and that he and the UFC can come to an agreement uh, about that. Uh, A lot has been made over the last couple fights about Justin Gaethje's evolving style, especially with his win over Raphael Fiziev and now Dustin Poirier, he seems to have toned it down a bit in yeah. terms of the risk taking and the, uh, the the ability to get sucked into a slugfest, I guess you would say. And frankly, he's been able to outduel a couple of probably more technical strikers, you might say, in Fiziev and Poirier here. So uh, changes for the better. Justin Gaethje continuing to evolve. I don't know if it's just situational for these couple of fights or if this is an overall thing. Continuing to evolve at 34 years old, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, honestly, I was surprised because uh, a couple days before this fight, I had gone back and watched the first one. And the first one, when you watch it, 
it's all from the get-go, Justin Gaethje pressuring forward, trying to walk down Dustin Poirier, and Poirier trying to stay mobile, trying to avoid planting his feet and stand in any one spot where Justin Gaethje can find him long enough, and circling from the perimeter while he tries to pick away at Justin Gaethje and tries to time those, those leg kicks so he can counter, which he eventually stunned him with. And then you watch this one, and it's sort of the reverse, where... Dustin Poirier is the one walking forward. Gaethje's the one with his back more toward the fence, standing there looking for opportunities to land those shots, and just a way more patient approach. And, you know, we've talked about it before that if you were going to manage any longevity in this game, especially in one of these weight classes that is essentially anything but heavyweight, but one of the ones that's very talent-rich, like lightweight, you're going to have to adapt and evolve and change. You can't yeah. just go out there and fight the same way all the time, especially if you're if we're fighting the way Justin Gaethje was fighting, where just coming forward, uh, swinging his arms, looking for you to get your head in the way. And that eventually you're going to run into some limitations with that. And also, as you get older, eventually you're going to run into some brain trauma with that. And so... He had to, I'm sure, if he wanted to stick around and keep competing at that high level, had to change up his strategy a little bit. And here he showed, you know, he can do some other stuff in more ways than one. Yeah. Um, he was always pretty self-aware about his fighting style and the idea that he wasn't going to be here forever. So maybe it makes sense that a guy as smart as Justin Gaethje and as self-aware as, as he seems to be, would make those changes as he gets older. And they've been impressive to watch in the cage over the last couple of fights. Islam Mahachev going to rematch with Chucky Olives over the lightweight title at UFC 294 in October. We believe that Justin Gaethje is the likely front runner to be the number one contender for the winner of that fight. And the thing about, about Dustin Poirier's loss here, Ben, you can say... You know, everyone can get caught. Everyone can get kicked in the head, especially when you're fighting a knockout guy like Justin Gaethje. But I would go as far as to say Dustin Poirier didn't look great throughout this fight. You know, we only saw six minutes of it, so it's hard to really judge it that much. But you and I mentioned it when we were watching this thing on Saturday night. Was the vibes off? Was the vibes vibes off. off for Dustin Poirier in this fight? Vibes was looking a little bit off early on. You mentioned it like as we were sitting there. It felt like at one point early on, I want to say it was in the first round, where he sort of like missed a punch and you could see him sort of shake his head in frustration a little bit, which already, you know, you don't really want to give your opponent that to show that you are getting annoyed at your own inability to hit him. But you certainly don't want to give him that in the first round. Yeah. You know, like that's that's a little bit early to be feeling that way. And also it just seemed like at times like where he seemed to be breathing hard. He seemed like he was really kind of sucking wind a little bit early on. And you're like, this is early in the fight for this. Yeah. I don't know if you're just, you know, you go out there for enough fights. Sometimes you're just not going to feel great or it's not going to, your body's not going to react the way you want to. I mean, he was doing all the other Justin Gaethje stuff. He was hiking up the shorts constantly, yeah. Yeah. you know, classic D- Dustin Poirier stuff. Uh, but yeah, it, he something about him did look like he just wasn't quite as sharp as as always. But I mean, he also he had some good moments in that fight. Caught, caught Justin Gaethje once and stunned him a little bit uh, before he just 
got clipped with that head kick that clearly he didn't see at all. Yeah, it just seemed like his timing was off or something. He couldn't really get started, couldn't get out of the starting blocks. Justin Gaethje started this fight immediately with a hard low kick, and I don't know, man, it just kind of seemed like Poirier couldn't really get it going in a lot of facets that, that we are used to seeing from him. And again, maybe he would have if the fight continued to go on. Maybe he would have settled into it a little bit. But but yeah, he, I just it wasn't the kind of performance that I expected to see from him. Uh, he just He kept nodding. To, to confirm to Justin Gaethje that he had been hit, right? Every time Justin Gaethje landed a shot, Poirier would nod as if to say, okay, you got me. And I was kind of like, okay, we don't have to do that every time, right? Like, I know it's a couple of good guys fighting. They have a good relationship. They're cordial with each other. A guy lands a good shot on you. Maybe it's your instinct to be like, okay, you touched me with a good one there. But you start doing it on every strike, and I start thinking, it's not a good look. You're just telling everybody in the audience, like, oh, I got punched. I got punched by a good one there, so I'm going to nod. Yeah. Got clipped again. Just want everybody to be sure they they noticed that. Yeah. All right, let's get into some of these questions, and then we'll move on to uh, talking a little bit about Pereira and Yanni Blackjacks. We got this one from Brett Gardner, who writes in to say, if we're going to keep doing the BMF thing, how about a wider spread weight class or and no weight cuts? Just two about the same sized bad motherfuckers that want to scrap. I don't know. That's an interesting idea. It's uh, from a fight fan standpoint, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Um, and I guess it would give you more options. I just It just seems to me like the BMF title is the kind of thing that we want to have around when we need it, right? Yeah. We don't necessarily want Justin Gaethje to like be putting the BMF title on the line in his next fight. We want it. The UFC wants it, I should say, not necessarily us. They want it on a shelf in a dusty back corner of the war room where whenever they need to give a fight a little extra juice, they can be like, I don't know, man, put the BMF title on the line. Why not? Yeah, first of all, I don't want to cause waves or anything, Chad. However, I must point out, Justin Gaethje weighed in at 156 pounds. He did, he did. You mentioned this on Saturday night, and I, everyone knows you are a stickler for the rules. Yeah. You are, you're a, you, take, you go by the book every time. And so I know that this rubbed you the wrong way. I mean, Chad... That's not championship weight. You don't get the pound allowance for a championship fight. This was the BMF title. I was led to believe that is a type of championship. And yet, and yet, I mean, maybe, maybe the BMF title was not truly contested here. But it also seems... You think maybe only Dustin Poirier had the opportunity to win only the BMF Dustin title? Poirier was was eligible it also seems like you know as much as it's nice to have a belt to go home put on the wall all that kind of stuff didn't it seem like justin gaethje was only gonna sort of pay lip service to the idea of this being a big deal because he was like you know i want to fuck with the ufc lightweight championship i you know he wasn't exactly out here like i can't wait to defend this thing against other bmfs out there he was like hey cool cool give me the <laughs> give me the trophy um but i want the real shit yeah we had talked last week about how gaethje and poirier talked about how this fight was for legacy and maybe they had done that as a way to sort of sidestep 
having to confront full on what the BMF title may or may not mean. And so in the aftermath of this thing, it seemed like Justin Gaethje just wanted to keep that going and not really go hard on what the, what the BMF title means. Um, so we'll see. We'll see what the ultimate fate of the BMF title is. We're going to do this next one from Peter with a mustache. So, you know, a guy on my same wave, wavelength. He says, I understand that we have not seen new faces on lightweight fighting for the title, feeling like it's held hostage by the same four and five guys. But even if there's fresh blood coming, have they actually won a shot? Fiziev lost to Gaethje, Gamrot to Dariush, Turner to Hooker, Sarukian to Dawson. Uh, could be the next guys to earn a shot against the top five, but until one of them wins a top five fight, can we really blame the old guys for getting all the title shots? Love you guys equally, but not as much as my mustache, which is, that's frankly understandable. Do you agree with this? Here's your, here's your lightweight, let's say top 10 right now, because you will see there's some new blood in here. Obviously, Islam Mahachev is your champion. Chucky Olives is the number one contender. Dustin Poirier is still at number two. I assume they haven't updated these things. Justin Gaethje was number three. Benil Dariush at four. Michael Chandler at five. Rafael Fazeev at six. Mateusz Gamrod at seven. Armand Sarukian at eight. Rafael Dos Anjos at nine. Dan Hooker at 10. So you got those guys. And then you got uh, Grant Dawson, Jalen Turner, Matt Frivola, and Diego Ferreira also on the list, all of whom might constitute fresh blood in that uh, weight class in that ranking. What do you think? Does, do some of these guys need to prove themselves more, Ben? Are you okay with just sort of rinse and repeat cycle with guys like Charles Oliveira and Justin Gaethje? Yeah, well, I mean... I understand the point here being that you have all these guys who seem like they're right on the cusp. They haven't won the big one that would necessarily propel them into a title fight. And I kind of agree with that. They also, in a in a division this crowded, you either have got to win enough big fights, eliminate other potential contenders so that by process of elimination, you're the only one left. Or you got to just kind of capture people's imagination in order to enter that realm, you know? And guys like Dustin Poirier and Justin Gaethje have done that, where anytime they fight, it's a big deal. Everybody knows their names. Everybody knows what they bring. Some of these other guys, it's like, okay, we're we're excited about the possibilities. We're paying attention, but you're not quite there. You need to get to that point where people are going, when is my man here going to get a title shot? We want to see it. Or... You need to be the guy who picks up the phone and says yes, because for some reason with the dates, the way they worked out, nobody else was able to make it. Those are kind of the two ways that you can do it at lightweight right now. Yeah. All right, let's move on. We'll talk a little bit about Alex Pereira here versus Jan Blahovic. A lot of hype, frankly, and well-deserved hype for Alex Pereira, the former middleweight champion, moving up to light heavyweight here to try his hand at 205 pounds. Jan Blahovic, the former light heavyweight champ, there to greet him at the gates to see if he belongs at 205. I had not considered this during our first conversation about this fight, but uh, Jan Blahovic is sort of the guy who gets the call to uh, to welcome middleweights to light heavyweight, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you've done this more than one time. Most, uh, most publicly, the Israel Adesanya title shot, or... Uh, light heavyweight fight where Adesanya tried to go up to 205. So here's your gatekeeper, I guess. Not to say that in a negative way, but Jan Blahovic, uh, he's got a middleweight ass-whooping card. And he'll he'll (laughs) wait there for you to show up. Now, Alex Pereira does, in fact, emerge 
with the split decision victory here. He goes 29, 28, 29, 28, 29, 29, 28. So two rounds to one. Uh, either way, you had it. Did you think the decision was right? I guess I'll ask first. Yes, I had to admit that I did, even though in our $20 I never want to see again, I had Jan Blahovic via decision and I was, had a lot right on that one. But honestly, I think he went out there. Uh, Yanni Blackjacks won the first round. I don't see how you really argue with that. But he did get a little tired, Chad. Yeah. He, I mean, a little bit tired. Could you make the argument that maybe the uh, the altitude here in Salt Lake City affected maybe Jan Blahovich and also Dustin Poirier a little bit? We talked a few minutes ago about how it looked like Poirier was huffing and puffing a little bit in the first round. Yeah, I, I mean, with Jan Blahovich, it honestly seemed like, and maybe it was Joe Rogan who made this point, and and I think that it was actually a good point that while he has that wrestling in his game. He normally doesn't lean on it to the extent that the game plan seemed to lean on it against Alex Pereira. Right. And so you go out there, maybe the the elevation is part of it, but maybe it's also just having to do the sustained wrestling where you're you're up there against a big guy and you got to take him down and keep him down. And that maybe he kind of wore himself out in that way uh, more than he expected. And it's like, you know, he wins that first round. He, he was doing well at the start of the second round, but then uh, Pereira came on strong later in the round. And even in the third, when he got that takedown toward the end, which he desperately needed, he wasn't really able to do much. He, yeah. he got a takedown with like less than a minute left. He wasn't really able to land any impactful strikes. And the way we're supposed to be scoring this now, like I just don't see the argument for giving it to him there. Honestly, though, I was surprised that it ended up being as close as it was because he looked tired way earlier in this fight. And Alex Pereira seemed like he could have just turned the volume up a little bit, turned up the the output and maybe made it a little more clear. You know, he, he kind of played with fire a little bit, like by even allowing it to be that close. Cause you you never know what those judges going to do. Yeah. You mentioned that you had the bet down on Jan Blahovic to win. I had the bet down in our $20. We never want to see again segment on the power hour uh alex Pereira by ko kind of an underdog bet on that and for the last you know round and change in this fight he was fighting like he wanted to avoid that at all costs right it seemed like basically for the last six minutes of this fight alex Pereira could have pressed a little bit more and he could have got jan blahovich out of there uh, maybe he's being a little cautious since it's his light heavyweight debut. Maybe he didn't want to trade strikes with a guy as, as uh, powerful as Jan Blahovich, but it was frustrating to watch a little bit here to see Alex Pereira seemingly coasting a little bit down the stretch here in the last six minutes when it seemed like he could have finished uh, Jan Blahovich if he really would have pressed forward a little bit. Nonetheless, I guess Alex Pereira now enters the realm of potential light heavyweight title contenders. They certainly wanted to anoint him as such in the cage after this was over. Obviously, you had Jamal Hill having to vacate the title after blowing out his Achilles recently. You've got Yuri Prohaska coming in off his own injury, the worst shoulder injury in the history of shoulders. Uh, He will probably, as long as he is healthy, get granted a shot at the light heavyweight title the currently vacant light heavyweight title he got Magomed on Kalaev hanging around somewhere who could probably get into a title shot but honestly despite the fact that it seemed like he tried real hard to give this one away 
if you told me that you were going to sign Alex Pereira and Yuri Prohaska to fight for the 205-pound title, you wouldn't hear no complaining from me. No. No, absolutely not. I mean, you have a lot of good options that you can can lean on there. Um, I, I wondered, we went into this with some questions about Alex Pereira's grappling. In the first round, honestly, I was sitting there at moments in the first round being like, is my bet going to get screwed up because Jan Blachowicz is just going to choke him? Yeah. Because, uh, you know, he's defending the choke, but it's not exactly a bulletproof defense, you can tell, even against a guy who is not necessarily known as a major submissions threat. Did you gain any more information from this about Alex Pereira's defensive grappling game, his ability to, to especially at a higher weight class where he's not always going to be the massively bigger dude? Do you think like okay, I saw enough to go, it's not a huge weakness in his game anymore. Not really. I mean, yeah. Jan Blahovich was on that back. I mean, Blahovich was cranking on those rear naked chokes that he was trying for too. That might have been part of what tuckered him out was just, you know, spending his energy really trying to get the squeeze on those chokes. But Blahovich got tired. What if he was out there against a light heavyweight that wasn't going to get tired? What if he was out there with a light heavyweight with better wrestling skills and more advanced submission skills than uh, primary striker? Jan Blachowicz is primarily a striker. What if what if, uh, what if if Pereira was out there against a guy with, with better grappling and a more determined grappling-based game plan? Like that, that seems like it could be trouble. Now, luckily for him, you look around the light heavyweight the upper echelon, I guess you could say, of light heavyweight. And you don't see a lot of guys like that. Magomed Ankalaev maybe being the exception as a guy who uh, could go out there and try to wrestle Alex Pereira. But that's still the blueprint, right? That still has to be the blueprint if you're going to fight Alex Pereira is to take him down. Because even if his grappling has improved, that's still a better option than trading power strikes with the guy. That's what you don't want to do. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I thought there were times, especially in that third round, where, man, just pump out the jab a little more and you might be able to get Jan Blahovic out of there. Because it's, you know, we were thinking the game plan might be Jan Blahovic take him down, wear him out, get those arms heavy so that he's not uh, such a threat striking wise. And instead, Jan Blahovic tires himself out grappling. And Pereira still had a lot of snap in those punches in the third round. Yeah, he did. And, and that's one of the things that made it. Uh... Made it so kind of frustrating to watch this fight. Uh, we did get this uh, email from Rory Orland over on Patreon who just writes, so dot, 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 sea level yawn, question mark? <laughs> I mean, I he seemed upset and surprised that he did not he win did. that decision. He did, yeah. It was the classic disgruntled, befuddled fighter throwing up his hands as if to say, what else could I have done here? And walking away, which I don't know, Jan. That's you probably could have done some more there, honestly. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like I—I I feel like I got what he was going for, but he just didn't quite nail it. Yeah, you know, especially yeah. down the stretch. The third biggest topic of conversation, I think, pretty clearly from this event. Derek Lewis going out there, first of all, showing up looking like he had abs. 
looking like he had to six pack a little bit, which is different for the Derek Lewis body style. But he goes out there against Marcos Rogerio de Lima and immediately comes running across the cage and lands a flying switch knee on this dude. Knocks him down, hit him right in the middle of the face with the knee, which if Derek Lewis does that to you, that doesn't feel good. Doesn't feel good to get kneed in the middle of the face by Derek Lewis. DeLima drops. Lewis gets on top of him. Basically rains down strikes until DeLima looked helpless, if not completely out of it, forcing the referee stoppage here. Derek Lewis with the TKO victory. 33 seconds into the first round. Nets him a performance of the night bonus alongside uh, the rest of the main card winners in Justin Gaethje, Derek Lewis, Bobby Green, and Kevin Holland. Only Alex Pereira left off that list. But uh, this is a good one for Derek Lewis. He gave you exactly what you wanted to see out of the fight. He snaps a three-fight losing streak with this win. And uh, then the antics, the the patented Derek Lewis oh, antics, which you, know, antics. which you know are you're going you're gonna to see when Derek Lewis wins a fight. We got this from Trevor Finch. He says, holy shit, Derek Lewis opens with a flying knee and ends the night early, drops the shorts and throws his cups and gloves to the crowd. No real question. Just want to appreciate a true showman. Thanks, guys. Yep. Derek Lewis is going to give you something to tell your friends about when you go, go away from the fight, one way or another. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You might. He might give you something to show your friends if you happen to catch Derek Lewis's cup <laughs> as it flew through the night air yeah. in Salt Lake City. Is that a... Is that a good souvenir when you catch the cup? Or is that one it's you a look conversation for a kid, piece? You look for a kid to hand it to the same way you would a foul ball at a baseball game. Oh, I catch a foul ball. I'm going to fight a kid for it. <laughs> there ain't no way. But You're I mean, the guy who comes running with the flying clothesline to try to get the kid out of the way so you can get to the ball. I'm You, you go home, you put that on your mantelpiece. You got yourself a conversation starter. Yeah, and you'll know forever that you hit a kid with the rock bottom in order to get it. You just, I mean, I'll I'll start hosting cocktail parties just so I can have conversations with people about (laughs) Derek Lewis's cup that I have prominently displayed in my home after that. Here's the thing about MMA. We like dumb stuff. Oh, we love it. If you have stuck around in this sport this long and you are still a fan of it, there's part of you. There's got to be a part of you deep down. You like dumb stuff. You like lowbrow, bottom of the barrel, big guy taking off his shorts and doing a shimmy around the cage stuff. And Derek Lewis plays right into that, man. You, he's uh, he's given us exactly what I want. What well, we and he's going to give say. it to you in a few different ways, too. Because for one thing, I love everything about him deciding I'm going to start off running across the cage and a flying knee of this dude's face, which you know was like the last thing he could have been expecting from Derek Lewis. You know they were probably sitting around in the locker room afterwards, you know, nobody really talking at first. And Marcus Rogerio de Lima's coaches all kind of just like shaking their heads and somebody just finally gets the nerve to say it like <sighs> didn't see it coming. Yeah. Who thinks Derek Lewis can even jump that high? Who thinks Derek Lewis can run that fast? Like you just Hey man, you know, he caught us sleeping on that one. He did. No one, no one thought to even talk about this possibility in training. But then also, I love everything about him saying that his coach has been having him work on it in practice, and he was about ready to give up on this bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> and figured might as well try it out in a fight and see if it works. Yeah, I'm. I'm uh, he was glad that that landed. We got several 
emails just in in appreciation of Derek Lewis from Hair Danny Boy the Third, who wrote Derek Lewis with abs is now on part with on par with C level Kane, motivated BJ Penn, serious Anderson Silva, and Chuck Liddell with that look in his eyes. This man is a goddamn treasure, and I'll miss him when he's gone. Uh, the ghost of Ted Kaczynski wrote in to sell. Oh, I'm sorry, the ghost of Ted Kaczynski in art school writes in with this okay, here's okay. the here's the subject line on this email it says we all know Derek lewis can't suddenly grow abs and keep up a relentless pace and finish fights all the way to the heavyweight title but what this email presupposes is maybe he can then he goes on to write that's kind of the bulk of my question and i'm writing this email without even having heard whatever funny shit the black beast said after his victory i'm just impressed as hell at what appears to be a motivated as fuck Derek lewis and then he says in parentheses houston horns thing where where ronda rousey's fine ass at discuss i mean um, this, uh, this is the performance you want to see all the way around from Derek lewis I really did not realize that Derek Lewis was going into the final fight of the contract mm-hmm. on this one. Did you know that beforehand? I did not, but we got this email from Gabriel Gage, who writes, Dear CME Brain Trust, we've just received word from Derek Lewis that his contract as its buyers expired and he is a free agent. He said that he'd like to re-sign with the UFC, but if not, it is what it is. With that Fuck in it. mind, could this be a direct call for the PFL? Does the Black Beast want to run it back with the Predator for a much bigger paycheck? What would you esteemed gentlemen suggest to our friend Derek? Now, first of all, Ben, Derek Lewis with the greatest quote of all time about a coming contract negotiation with the UFC. He says, I, I would love to get another contract with the UFC, but if not, shit, fuck, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But here's the question. Can this, like, as I tweeted on Saturday night, Derek Lewis seems like a kind of guy who'd want to go get that two mil. That seems like something he would want to do to be Francis Ngannou's opponent. But as will be widely pointed out, if that fight ever comes close to a reality, these two men fought one time before. No, they as, didn't. As much as we want to pretend like it never happened. Never happened. It was an absolute stinker. It nope. was unbelievably terrible. Does a rematch. I mean, you'd think, hey, man, you could if you're the PFL and you can put on Francis Ngannou versus Derek Lewis, you do it 100 times out of 100. But given the, the absolute stink fest that was that first fight that never happened, is this a marketable fight? Would that be a marketable fight for the PFL to try to put on? First of all, if I were the PFL and I were able to sign and make that fight, my official position from the moment I ink it until the fight night itself is that that first fight was a bad dream you had. Yeah. It was a collective hallucination that the MMA community all engaged in after eating moldy wheat. I mean, it would be kind of hilarious if you went all the way with that gimmick if you were the PFL. Mm-hmm. And every time you mentioned it, you were like, for the first time ever, yes. Derek Lewis versus Francis Ngannou come into the PFL cage, the two most uh, dreaded strikers in the heavyweight division, having never met each other before inside a steel cage for the very first time, will engage in their debut meeting at the PFL. I mean, I could see that there would be a lot of demand for the kind of service that Derek Lewis could offer right now at yeah. this point, which yeah. is to say a known guy, a heavyweight slugger who people already like and care about and will pay attention to wherever he goes. 
whether you're BKFC trying to make you maybe a Ben Rothwell, Derek Lewis bare knuckle boxing match, whether you're PFL trying to do for the first time ever Francis Ngannou versus Derek Lewis. I mean, it's it's a little bit surprising that he got to this point where he he can test the free agency and see what it's like because I I think that Derek Lewis is probably at a point in his career where he's like, hey. I had a kick at the can when it comes to actually being a serious heavyweight contender in the UFC. Who knows how much longer I got in this game. What I need now is to get paid and not eventually I need to get paid within these next couple fights. And that's the kind of thing that the PFL is offering you. It's like you need a dance partner for Francis Ngannou. You need it to be something good. And there's also a guaranteed price tag for it if you end up being that opponent. I would... I would feel like my free agency was kind of fortuitously timed yeah. if I were Derek Lewis. Yeah, he at, at least mu- must have to check it out. He has to check it out, I think. Uh, either you pretend like that fight has never happened before if you're the PFL, or you go with a marketing scheme of like, it couldn't be terrible twice, right? Mm-hmm. We saw the bad one the first time. Lightning cannot strike twice with these two heavyweights. This time is sure to be a barn burner. Just ain't no way. Ain't no yeah. way it could be shitty twice. Yeah. Or you're just like, well, I mean, it was shitty in the UFC, but it isn't everything. Over here in the PFL, we got the goods. We got the exciting fights. I mean, maybe not the time to make that argument where you just had to like basically <laughs> demote two guys out of the tournament for not fighting hard enough. <laughs> well, then you can be like, see, in the PFL, there's consequences when you have a stinker. <laughs> Uh, we did. We talked about Kevin Holland and Michael Chiesa. In fact, the first two fights on the UFC 291 card were kind of wipeouts. And we're going to get in a little bit here to Bobby Green and Tony Ferguson. Bobby Green ends up choking Tony Ferguson unconscious in the third round just before the end of the fight with an arm triangle choke. It had not been competitive up to that point. Tony Ferguson, uh, he catches his sixth loss in a row here, Ben and had been out of the cage for almost a year. Obviously, highly publicized personal issue just before this fight, flipping his truck over onto another car in a drunk driving incident. Uh, He came in at least looking like he was in shape, but I don't know, man. Bobby Green kind of outquicked him, and in the end, he pretty much beat the shit out of Tony Ferguson en route to that choke. Yeah, and... I don't know if any of us came into this really expecting anything great to happen for Tony Ferguson at this stage of his career, just because what we've seen with him recently. And then when you're flipping your car over onto another car a couple of months before the fight, it doesn't exactly tell us that you are living the disciplined monkish lifestyle of a guy trying to get his shit together and get back on the winning track. And it just seemed like he he didn't have a whole lot for... Bobby Green's speed. He's just he he's walking forward, but also like walking forward into repeated punches. Couldn't move his head out of the way most of the time of those. And it was it's a testament to his toughness that he lasted as long as he did in that fight. And of course, it's not going to tap when you get him into an arm triangle choke. But it also just felt like I don't know what anybody was supposed to expect here. Like this is definitely not the worst case scenario. Like seeing him get choked to sleep like that. Was, almost like a a gentle putting to bed for Tony Ferguson here. Yeah. Uh, We got this question from Dan Alexander who wrote, what are we doing here with Tony Ferguson? 
It felt sad watching him do everything at half speed right up until he got choked out. Looks like the UFC have the formerly outspoken Ferguson exactly where they want him, desperate for fights, willing to ignore the damage which he is taking. Just all felt sad to me. Please discourse without making us all cry. Uh, I don't know, man. It is just a sad thing, frankly, to see Tony Ferguson go out there and get beat like this. To take nothing away from Bobby Green, though, who has been pretty darn good uh, as of late in the UFC. But do you have to pull the plug on Tony Ferguson? We know Tony Ferguson probably ain't going to walk away of his own accord. But if you're the UFC, and for God's sakes, you pulled the rug out from under Chuck Liddell when he was 1-5 in in his last six, now you got Tony Ferguson 0-6 in his last six, and he's not looking competitive out there against these guys. Do you have to force him out the door, even if he's going to go do something else somewhere else? Do you have to say, hey, man, you don't got to go home, but you can't stay here? Well, at this point, what do you do if you keep him? You know, like what is there for him to do here? Like in the UFC where you you got six in a row now, right? It's not looking great. Who do you match him up against? Because you're still paying him Tony Ferguson money. You're still going to want to use him as a known guy. You know, if they do keep him around, the thing that they'll see him as being good for is fodder to prop up somebody else. But that's just going to get depressing and it will be a game of diminishing returns because it's just it's not going to mean, mean as much to beat Tony Ferguson anymore. And yet he's out here talking about how, no, he's not going to retire. He's going to go on a five fight win streak and win a title and shit like that. And you're just like he's not ready to come to terms with that. He's still out here t- saying uh, the whole thing that happened is that Bobby Green poked him in the eye. And that was the difference maker in that fight. So I don't know if there's any indication that Tony Ferguson, a guy who already was the Weirdsmobile's Weirdsmobile is ready to get into some kind of like hyper-realistic focus on what's really happening. You know, a, a sober analysis of his the state of his own career. He doesn't seem like he's ready to do that. So maybe the UFC has to do it for him to some extent. Well, you asked what you can still do with him. We did get this question from Long Live Gunu who says, do you agree that it seems like at this point the only humane thing to do is serve up Tony Ferguson one last time to Patty Pimblett before he is put out to pasture? Now, I assume that is a joke because no sane man would make this recommendation of sound mind and body that what we ought to do is have Tony Ferguson go out there and fight Patty Pimblett. I mean... At that point, what would you be really saying about Patty Pimlet and the role he occupies in the UFC? Well, nothing that hasn't been said before. Yeah, but it was like just booking that fight would be the UFC saying like, well, we got to get this guy some legit wins somehow, you know? Hey, man, it's not a great look. I'm of the opinion that this version of Tony Ferguson might still beat Patty Pimlet. So there. Here we go. All right, Ben, let's get into a few of the odds and ends here around this UFC 291 card. You were supposed to have Michelle Pereira and Stephen the Wonder Man Thompson on this thing. Of course, Michelle Pereira missed weight, and that fight didn't end up happening. There were some headlines around the MMA industry that because of that, Stephen Thompson did not even get his show money to go in there and fight Michelle Pereira. We got this question 
from Backpack Boom Bap, who wrote, Apparently the Wonder Man wasn't paid for making weight and being available to fight an opponent at the agreed 171-pound limit on Saturday night. I thought the UFC's previous stance had been to pay fighters rather than leave them with nothing. Thompson achieved his contractual obligation, so shouldn't he get the bag? Also, will missing weight become an additional skill in Dondasso if your opponent is forced to fight you regardless of weight? We also got this one from Chili Willy Reverend Gaskin, who writes, Would you put it past the UFC to withhold Wonderboy's show money because he declined to fight Michelle Pereira? No, I would not put it past the UFC. <laughs> I wouldn't put anything all. past the UFC at this point. I mean... First of all, if they really did that, that's terrible. I just a guy misses weight by a whole lot. The other guy says, "You know what? This is bullshit. This is not the fight I agreed to." When he showed up, made weight, did all the stuff that's expected of him, and it shouldn't be up to you, the promoter, to decide whether to pay that guy his show money or not. That should be it. That's what you have an athletic commission for. I don't know exactly what the rules say in Utah, but. That should be in the Athletic Commission rules. I mean, Jesus Christ, this shit is already so tilted in favor of the promoter in every possible regard. You can't even have that protection in there that says, hey, if you show up, you make weight, you do your part, you at least get your show money. Because it's certainly the UFC's finances are not harmed at all by having to pull the plug on that fight at the end. You're not going to sell any fewer pay-per-views because of it. You'd already sold the tickets. You'd already made a bunch of money just from the city of Salt Lake City paying you to come there, plus your guaranteed fee from ESPN. You're not losing anything, and yet you're going to pocket what to you is chump change that you were going to pay Stephen Thompson for doing his job, and you'd be like, no, we're not even going to give you that. It seems to me like what you're really doing is trying to send a message to all the other fighters out there that says, hey, don't you fuck around with these fights that we've made, even if by the time we're asking you to agree to get in the cage, it's a different fight. Say yes. Don't be difficult because we will not pay you at all. And to make that point with a guy like Stephen Thompson, who has for years been, you know, a guy who's showing up, doing whatever you ask him to do. You got him in there on some of your like big ad campaigns for some of the big UFC sponsors. A guy who's just been like a, a good dude throughout the entire t- time we've known him in the UFC. And you're going to screw that guy just to kind of send a message that, hey, take these fights or else. Like that is just shitty, man. That's yeah. on a whole new level even for the UFC shitty. Plus, you're also telling other people, if you think you can get an advantage by coming in, a few pounds over. Hey, you take the hit, 20% of your purse or whatever it is goes to the other guy. But if it's going to make the difference of you getting, you know, an extra 50K or whatever in your win bonus, then it might be worth it because that guy's going to be pressured so heavily to take the fight anyway because he knows he won't get paid if he doesn't. I'd like to think that any fighter who makes weight and does in fact show, you're supposed to get your show money if you show. And I'd like to think that anybody who does, in fact, show, show up, make weight, be ready to fight, be physically able to fight, you showed. I would like to think yeah. that they get their show money. But regardless of what I think about them personally, as you said, I can't imagine doing this to a guy who has been as likable and seemingly moral and seemingly such a straight shooter as Stephen Thompson. Not only is it just a terrible personnel decision by the UFC, a heartless decision by the UFC and not that they care about this, but it's also just awful public relations. 
inside the bubble to be like, yes, we are screwing widely renowned, exciting, nice guy, Stephen Thompson for something that Michelle Pereira did. That's just crazy. And I hope that in some kind of back channel way or after the fact that we end up getting Stephen Thompson his money, because otherwise, what a just an absolute screw job for this guy. Yeah, well, and I saw, you know, our dude Sean Sheehan was mentioning on Twitter that we used to think, hey, if the PR is bad enough, it's a, it's a bad enough look publicly for the UFC, that will pressure them to not be so extremely greedy with some of these policies. And yet, these days, it seems like the UFC has decided, like, well, actually, we went through some terrible PR, all kinds of terrible PR, ranging from like all kinds of fighter pay issues to the president of the company slapping his wife in public and didn't seem to harm us at all. We just, we, we continue to make more money each year than we did the year before. So at a certain point, kind of looking around and being like, screw it. Like, what do we care about bad PR? Yeah. We're, yeah. we're still raking in the cash. Yeah. They are bulletproof at this point, which is Somewhat depressing when you see people like Stephen Thompson get treated this way. Uh, we yep. got this question from the Mission District Crow who wrote in, should Priscilla, Priscilla Cashuera trying to pull down Miranda Maverick's top to stop her from pounding that ass be considered the evolution of Dundasso or a low point for failing to take points or both? Uh, I have to admit I did not catch this one. It was the... Uh, the curtain jerker, curtain I believe, jerker. Yeah. the early prelims. And so I, I did not see it. I have a, a blanket rule to bet against anyone who is, or to bet against, to bet with whoever is fighting. Bet on, I should say. Took me a while to get that out. Bet mm-hmm. on whoever is fighting Priscilla Cashuera. Uh, did you see this? Did you, Is this an actual thing that she did? I I went back afterwards and caught the, the highlight of the arm bar finish. But that's about all I saw of that fight. I mean, if it's true, if you're if we're trying to uh, use somebody's wardrobe to buy yourself some time, if you're losing a fight, I have to say I support it. You know, you do what you got to do in there. That's that's the spirit of Dundasso right there. Yeah, you you keep fighting until the ref pulls you off, and always try to yank down someone's pants or uh, mm-hmm. pull their top off. That's just smart fighting. Every that's what every yeah. coach will tell you at a high level MMA gym. Absolutely. All right. Next question this week. We're getting down toward the end here. Uh, Yo mama and yo daddy's favorite algorithm wrote in to say, I know UFC 291 was cool and all, but did you see the absolute destruction put on by Terrence Bud Crawford against Errol Spence Jr. this past weekend? Bud can also wrestle. Check the vids on the internet. But hypothetically speaking, do you think he could beat guys at 145, 155 in the UFC? I think he would fuck up guys like Guida, Ferguson, Hooper if he ever had a one-off MMA fight. Were we saying Guida? Clay Guida? That's yeah. who you imagine him fighting? That's You imagine a world in which Terrence Crawford comes to MMA, signs some kind of deal with the UFC, and they go, okay. Terrence Crawford versus Clay Guida, the fight that just makes sense. Well, I mean, Chase Hooper is also on this list. Come on, no, I mean I did see the video of him doing a little wrestling. It was like, okay, yeah, he 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 knows his way around a little bit. Um, but also, I was surprised uh, going back and watching clips of that fight. How he he made that shit look easy, and that. That was not supposed to be that easy of a fight for him. So I'm impressed. He's he's damn good. That boy good, Chad. Yeah. That, that boy, boy good. good. I mean, could he could he come to MMA and do it? I mean, 
Maybe, but why would he need to? <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. That's the thing. Uh, he wants to come over and get paid 25 and 25 to yeah. uh, have an MMA fight, have a a fight that's not even really in his chosen discipline and one where if now he knows if your opponent doesn't make weight, maybe you don't get paid anything at all. If yes. I were him, I'd stay over there and have the stand-up punch-only fights to get paid a much, 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 much more money. Yeah, especially because... He's really fucking good at it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just get paid way more money to do the thing that you are best at. Seems like a pretty good and easy career decision for yeah. anyone. Not just a professional athlete, but anyone, frankly. All right. We are going to wrap it up there for the free portion of the co-main event podcast proper. I think coming up in our after hours segment, we will have a few more questions to answer here uh check us out over on patreon ben folks is out of town for the rest of this week going out there to the big apple so watch for him on the streets but uh we'll be back next week with the proper and then a completely additional week a complete week i should say of patreon content so come check us out over there patreon.com slash co-main event that'll get you in the door for all of the extra content that we have as for right now we're going to get into a few of these final questions for the 20 dollars patrons of the co-main event for everybody else thanks for listening for right now we are done we are through we are out all right here's one from eric murphy who wrote in to say, My frosty fellas, my dudes, my uncrowned princes of Maine, are you aware 1FC and the Fight Pass Invitational Jiu-Jitsu tournaments are on VR? Have you tried it? Are you even slightly interested in trying it? I just watched both and I'm pumped. It's like being in the corner and it elevated the crap out of the experience and I'd love to watch a pay-per-view from the same exact vantage point. Is this a gimmick or could this perhaps be the actual future of fighting? We saw this bandied about before, right? There was a uh, there was an event, I believe it was on Fight Pass, a smaller MMA event, and they went ahead and put it on quote unquote virtual reality, just to sort of test how it works. I didn't actually watch it. Yeah.